come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. Sponsored by the OVH Cloud Startup Program. This is Talk Tank, the official LSE Entrepreneur Podcast. My name is Sia, and I will be your host for today. Welcome to our Bits and Bytes series, where we are focusing on individuals at the forefront of technological innovation. Glenn Moriarty is a clinical psychologist who founded Seven Cups after attending Y Combinator in 2013. Seven Cups is a free website that connects those in emotional distress with trained volunteer listeners, as well as professional therapists. Seven Cups, having been awarded the Stanford MedEx Prize in Health Systems Innovation and the World Economic Forum Technology Pioneer Award, has reached over 60 million people in 189 countries. Great to be here with you. Yeah, excited about it as well. Super. And as I did say to you in our previous conversations, I came across Seven Cups uh, a while ago. I think it's a fantastic idea. We're going to tell the listeners a little bit more about what it is. But obviously, for everyone who's listening, they can go to sevencups.com and check it out. It's going to be very helpful for especially students who are prime listeners of, of this um, podcast. Uh, Glenn, what, what I wanted to do with you is a little bit explore you, the man, explore the work you're doing, the journey you've gone through, because that's obviously interesting, given that this is an LSE podcast. And I thought we'll start a little bit with, with you. And, you know, I found when I think about myself and when I speak to a lot of other entrepreneurs, a lot of what they do later in life is connected to some childhood experiences or experiences early in their career um, yeah. that forged what they're interested in later. What, what were the early experiences that shaped you as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think that's a real. I think that's a really good point. Um, that you know, we're we're all on a path, and you know, it's there's the the path that you walk down, whatever forks you take, are informed by the earlier steps in the process. Um, and and I think any kind of creative work, entrepreneurialism, you know, included in that is is tied to the person. Um, so it's it's kind of tough to get a get away from that. I think. Um, and so, yeah, my, my, the, the kind of the key parts for me were, uh, you know, I did grow up, you know, in a pretty tough family, you know, in a, in a rough situation, plenty of, plenty of challenges along the way as, as many. And that's, that's not unusual for entrepreneurs, um, just in the sense that you, you kind of need a, a higher pain tolerance, I think, uh, you know, Elon Musk, I think famously said that uh, starting a company is like, you know, chewing glass and looking into the abyss. Uh, so somebody else said it's like um, uh, somebody's punching you in the face repeatedly and another person is throwing cookies at you and you have to look for the cookies, uh, you know, in order to keep going. Um, so um, anyways, I, I do think that's important from from uh, uh, having a sense of resilience and the ability to overcome challenges is, is kind of good training for that. But also there's a thing called being a, a wounded healer, which is basically somebody who's you know, been helped by other people, um, and then overcome some challenges through that help from others, and then is paying it forward. And so in that sense, I've also had a lot of people kind of looking out for me along the way, you know, that have helped me out. And so that, you know, you know despite or maybe as a consequence of some early life challenges, 
um, knowing what it's like to be in pain, knowing what those challenges are like, and then finding people, you know, that that could could see you and wanted to help you, um, and then experiencing that, and then you know later on in life, I started a tech company, uh, educational tech company. I think we talked about that, and you know that taught me just a lot about technology, working with engineers, working with clients, all this kind of thing. Um, but it really was like, okay, as a psychologist, how do you scale helping people, right? So for the most part, it's like this, it's one-to-one -one therapy, as you know, right? So I'm, I'm chatting with you, I'm listening to you, I'm paying attention, I'm caring for you. And then I'm using usually some kind of protocol to help you out that's based on whatever challenges you face. So if you have you know, social anxiety, I'm going to use CBT to help you not be so worried around other people, right? And to be more positive and optimistic in, in that situation. But as a psychologist, you can only really scale by doing group therapy, which for your listeners is pretty much just as efficacious as individual therapy, which is good. So if you're, if you're a clinician or you're a student and you want to become a mental health professional, groups are really powerful mechanisms to scale care. But beyond groups, um, we can leverage technology and we can use technology to help people. And that's really what, so all of those ingredients are kind of what, you know, wove through seven cups to provide this sense of scaling care. And for the, for the listeners, you know, briefly seven cups is a, is a free emotional support platform where, wherever you're going through, whatever, you know, whatever language you speak, whatever challenge you're facing, you can connect with a trained volunteer listener. So somebody who's uh, often, like me, gone through some challenges. About half of our listeners have gone through challenges in life and are now giving back. And then half are just altruistic soul, souls, volunteers that, that care for others. And they practice something that's called active listening, which is paraphrasing, summarizing, empathizing. Basically, you know, whenever you're going through a hard time, one of the first things you want to do is talk to somebody about it. And when you talk to them, there's this kind of natural feeling of relief. And uh, so that's what the service is, along with some 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 tailored exercises and community, et cetera. You mentioned the the, the topic of of pain, which is obviously a very important topic in entrepreneurship. There's a lot of failure in there. A lot of people talk about it, and you know, especially I guess when you're younger, it's very tough to deal with rejection when things don't work out. But it's your bread and butter as an entrepreneur. But how do you deal with rejection? What mechanisms have you developed to come out? the other end more resilient or resilient? That's an excellent question. Um, and I don't know that any of this is original to me. Um, you know, thankfully, I think in the, the wisdom traditions, you know, world religions, spiritualities, philosophies, more recently psychology, more recently research in psychology, we, we know now a lot of, of what helps. But the core, the core thing for me is this idea, and it's a stoic idea, that the problem is the path. A lot of people think like life is good when it's good, right? It's like everything's going great. Friends are good. Maybe you're in a romantic relationship. That's good. You're making enough money, right? Things are, things are good. In that context, you don't really grow, unfortunately. Like I, I wish people just made leaps and bounds through having an excellent life, but that's just kind of not how it goes. Um, instead, we, we tend to really grow through facing and problem and in solving problems. Like that's how growth happens. That's how, that's how things are figured out as individuals or as organizations. You know, 
I, I always felt that when I look at people who've worked in a, in a corporate environment, they come out and there's a great skill set that they learn. And maybe some of it is not transferable into the entrepreneurial world. There's a lot of things they do wrong. Um, and then the other way around, a lot of people who are by disposition suited to entrepreneurship might not do well um, down the corporate route. What, what have you seen in terms of that? Do you feel it's beneficial for people to be in the corporate world, then do entrepreneurship or straight go into entrepreneurship? And I know the answer is always it depends and can't be said, but there's yeah. a little bit some conclusions that we sometimes draw on our biased sampling of reality. I mean, I think, listen, if you want to be an entrepreneur, the things that the learning compounds. So like, it, like anything, like if you want to be a mountain climber, like go start learning how to climb mountains, right? If you want, whatever the thing is, is it, if you want to be an entrepreneur, jump in and learn because you're, you're going to have to, the key to being an entrepreneur is you have to learn fast. You have to cycle through learning quickly. Um, and so, you know, I think getting involved in some kind of mentorship program, uh, some kind of entrepreneurial program, and then just learning and cycling through fast learning as much as you can is is probably the best way to be an entrepreneur um i don't i mean i think you can learn learn a lot of valuable things you know going to you know a, a big corporation and learning first and i, and I don't want to like minimize that at all but like you what happens is your brain gets set up for that environment and in that environment there's usually a lot of resources i mean so like to your entrepreneurship point those things aren't usually terribly successful because they're kind of like artificial environments. Um, you know, and, and you're, so think about your brain as uh, an, an adaptive mechanism, right? You can drop a brain anywhere in the world. It'll pick up the language, it'll pick up the customs, it'll pick up the cultures, it'll navigate, it will adapt. And so a corporate environment is a distinct environment. Uh, startup, starting a startup is a distinct environment. And so where you drop that brain matters. If you, if you drop it in a corporate environment, it's going to learn all the explicit and implicit mechanisms of succeeding in that corporate environment, which are you know, things like politics end up being important. Whereas in a startup, politics are like horrible. They're like the worst, you, know, you, you don't want to deal with that at all um, because there's no time for it. You know, I have been thinking about seven cups, you know, a lot during commutes because there's a reason I want to go into why, why I think it's a fantastic concept. But, you know, one of the reasons is that you don't have enough therapists given how many people have mental health problems and it takes time to train them up and it takes money. And a lot of people don't have the money in the UK, for example, you can go to the NHS, you can wait for about 12 months or six months to get, you know, six rounds or six sessions of therapy, or you can go to a private therapist and just a lot of people, even if they have the money, there's very little incentive to spend it on, on mental health. Yeah. So for a reason I'll, I'll get to in a, in a second, I think it's fantastic to use volunteers, which seven cups does in order to support people's mental health. Um, what is it that we know about efficacy? How well do volunteers work? Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank, thanks for that. I know it's tough. Like my my partner is a therapist, and it's hundred. She charges one hundred and fifty dollars cash an hour, um, which I'm I'm like really glad for her. Right, it's good and and, and for our family, but one hundred and fifty bucks a, a session. 
for most people, right? Especially like in this time of inflation and everything else, it's just, it's just not, you know, people just don't have the money to do it. Um, so, so we have to find other ways of doing it. And as you said, volunteers, um, I think are, you know, key. And I think it's just better to building a better society too. Like when we're looking out for each other, excuse me, we have a better society, uh, which is very powerful. Um, I think when, when I care for you and I'm not financially incentivized to do it, it strengthens our relationship. And then that spills over. It's like it ripples out, right? Which, which I think is, is, is powerful. But to your point about efficacy data, yeah, the key thing about what makes therapy work is this thing called the therapeutic alliance, which is basically if you go see a therapist, you're going to want to know they like you, right? And we know when somebody likes us and we know when somebody doesn't like us. There's an intuitive, right? You just know. So you got to feel like, hey, this therapist actually likes me. Um, and then you got to feel like, hey, I trust this person. So, so they're going to come alongside me, right? They're going to kind of emotionally put their arm around me, right? On my shoulder. And they're going to, they're, we're going to look together at the problem that is in front of us. Right? The problem is not me. I'm not the problem. There's a problem outside of me. And this, this person, this expert is going to help me solve this problem, right? And we are going to agree. We're going to be aligned, therapeutic alliance. We're going to work together to solve this problem. And so that key thing, the therapeutic alliance, is the base of what it, you know, is 60, 65% of what makes therapy work. So, so to use the, the earlier version of social anxiety that we were talking about, right? So people that have social anxiety, they worry about talking to other people in their mind, their self-talk, right? What they say to them in their internal intercom system. They say things like, this person doesn't like me. They're making fun of me. Oh my God, I, you know, I, I made a mistake in my speech. Kind of like what, what folks that don't struggle with social anxiety feel whenever they do public speaking. It's just like that kind of frequently. And so I can use a CBT protocol to help that person. I can say, okay, hey, look, you're really worried about making these new friends. And you think if you talk to this person, uh, they're going to negatively judge you. So as a consequence, you're going to stay in your room. All right, so, you know, if I'm at LSC, hey, I want you, right, this part of our job is, you know, you're going to go to the cafeteria or you're going to go to a coffee shop, and I just want you to say hi to this person and see if you can start a conversation. And you imagine these bad things are going to happen, but let's just test and see. If I do that protocol, but you don't feel like I like you, it's not going to work. And if you don't feel like I'm aligned with you, it's not going to work. So you need this foundational alliance. And so we had a third party at Northwell, which is a big system in New York, um, do some data, do some research on, did, do our listeners reach therapeutic alliance levels? And there's a quick measure, it's called the, um, God, now I can't even remember the name of it. I think it's, I think it's just this therapeutic alliance measure. Uh, it's a slider, it's like four things. You just slide the things, you know, how close does, do I feel this person how much do they are aligned with me? How much do they want to help me meet my goals? One other, one other thing too. And um, yeah, our listeners met the same levels as licensed professionals. And so, and that's what really good mentors do or good educators or anybody else. They just basically, you, you know, they like you a good coach. You know, they, they like you, they enjoy you and they want to help you. Um, and that's a huge part of it. Um, and then, so for us, 
we use technology to do like the social anxiety part or the therapy interventions part. We, we you know, we don't train folks to do volunteers to do CBT or DBT or ACT or any of those protocols, but we leverage technology to do that. So the listeners, you think about it as like the unbundling of therapy. A listener will care for you, they'll align with you, and then you can use what we call growth paths, which are just small, bite-sized, you know, snacks, daily snacks that you can take to better cope with whatever issue you've got um, in a, a, you know, kind of in a measurable way. You know, there, there was a time when, when we were working on a research project and, and it was about, you know, the pretentious academic term as paraprofessionals and the effects they have on patients. It basically just means what happens if we use lay people and have them deliver some therapy. And basically across these things, when they look at the meta-analyses, the answer is that they have almost the same efficacy than trained therapists have, at which point you're a little bit suspicious about what does that mean about the training that a therapist um, goes through. But it was because of that data, which is even since, I think since the eighties, they've been doing that, that I thought Seven Cups is very clever because actually, you know, the there's always this debate around the active ingredients of therapy. Um, you know, a lot of people believe, you know, the prime one is the therapeutic alliance, there's different strengths of that. But I thought so too, based on that paraprofessional data. The problems with the paraprofessionals was that they were supervised. You know, they needed a lot of training and there's a lot of resources that goes into them. And with seven cups, it's a it's a compromise. There's there's less intensive training that's that's needed for them, and yet you're getting the results. Yeah, so a lot of it is, I mean, anytime you need people to do something, there is a bottleneck, right? So like, it's it's tough and, and we can't afford, you know, we have 500,000 volunteer listeners. I can't, I mean, you know, the from a supervisory level, if I, it, that's the traditional way, right? Is I would have to, um, you know, employ an army of supervisors to supervise all these folks. And instead you have to get there through training and technology. Um, so what, what we do is, um, uh, and I think we talked about the stack overflow, right? Didn't we briefly talk we did. about this? Yes, we did. Yeah. Yeah. But for, just for your listeners. So you have to complete an initial listener training program. Then you have to, uh, which is like exercises, videos, et cetera. Then we put you in front of a bot that acts like a, a student that's depressed. You have to help that bot feel better. Then you make an oath to treat people with dignity and respect. And then you're put into the equivalent of our Stack Overflow professional educational uh, development program. Um, and in that there's 280 levels and then you kind of unlock, you know, you earn points and badges for like, we have 70 different trainings on the platform, for, for example, um, SAMHSA-based peer training programs, et cetera. Um, and then there's all kinds of things we do. Um, our head researcher is, is looking at what, what are the motivational interviewing and what is the language that best best helps individuals? And so you can imagine you and I are chatting. And so if you if you have an iPhone or probably Android when you're texting and you see the recommended word, right? It's like you might be writing appropriate. And so then you see appropriate and you just press the, the appropriate word instead of typing the whole thing in. Um, we're working on some technology where it's, kind of auto suggested so it's like these would be like the best motivational interviewing things you could say or this would be kind of the best reflective things you could say based on what the client is saying or the or the what we call the client would be a member person seeking help um so i think there's i think there's tons we can do around supercharging uh regular listening to be super efficacious based on data 
again and that that's such a fantastic thing to do and, and again you know the thing i'm always curious about is if somebody wants to scale whatever it is they're doing and obviously technology is a prime way of scaling things with youtube a teacher can reach millions of people as opposed to 10 people with seven cups you instead of reaching one person you can reach you know millions of, of people as well now the you know here's the part that a lot of our listeners unless they're psychologists that's the part that they're really going to be interested about when it comes to your journey and i thought your company had you know some com complications in it in, in order to pull it off because your company was a marketplace in some ways you had to find the listeners you had to get the people who wanted to have their help um, it's a bit of a check chicken and egg problem did you learn any lessons with whom do you start first when you have such a problem yeah yeah the, the marketplace idea is a, is a really great point and you're right it's a free marketplace but you still have somebody providing the service and somebody receiving the service um so for us um i was the first listener and uh my my partner my wife was the second listener and um then i was getting students all up and down the coast of california from universities to be to be other listeners and then there's a there's a big nonprofit in the us called nami um and so one of the guys from nami said and the demand was always so high because back then when we launched in 2013 there was no there was essentially no mental health services on the internet and so you've got a world of pain very little ways to to help reduce that pain and so everybody linked to us and we got a ton of traffic and the demand was really really high and so we could never get in front of it and so this guy but but we we so to answer your question we erred on caring for the the people in pain first the people seeking help and then what happened was uh we put a little banner at the top of the chat that said one of the best ways to help yourself is to help somebody else and so that we then began converting a very small percent of the people seeking help to become listeners and so half of the folks that care for people on seven cups are just altruistic volunteers and then half are people that have been helped on the platform um, and so that helped us get enough people and it scales because the more people that seek help the more people become listeners and so you can always kind of stay in front of the demand mm -hmm. uh, but for your for your listeners i think there's incredible opportunity in unlocking these surpluses so if if, if they're you know if they're interested in entrepreneurial ideas this guy clay shirky has this idea called the cognitive surplus and so when humans are you know watching tv or like watching TikTok videos or hanging out on Instagram or whatever, they create things like Wikipedia. And so you've got a surplus of writers and editors who build a free encyclopedia. And then you have all of us that get to access it. And so you, you've got a surplus. So I think there are pockets of surplus all over the place and that if you're an entrepreneur and you want to have a social impact find a pocket of surplus you know like and that's really what we did right so there's a surplus of compassion people that care and then there's a bunch of people that need help and we just connected those things and so we're we're not good at seeing those pockets of surplus but i think they're all around us and 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 i think if you're if you're uh, interested in those things. I, I think that's how well, I, I think that's going to be my hope is that that's like the next real wave of social impact startups. 
is people just unlocking those surpluses all over the place. This is a little bit the Amartya Sen theory on, on why famines happen. I, I don't know anyone who's a sociologist or social science by training, you know, Amartya Sen, he, he wrote a book a long time ago about how famines, they don't occur because there's no food, but it's about the poor distribution of food. It doesn't get to the places, and in some places it's just way too much. So it's a human engineered problem, inefficiencies in that. You know, the showing up, so you showed up on campuses, you recruited a few volunteers. How did that look? Did you have like a six pack of beers and you were in the middle of campus and you're asked who wants to be a volunteer? How did that look like? No, it was all, it was all, uh, it was all digital. I was like, hey, can I, you know, we got in with a UCLA student who just found us as a listener. And then she was like, hey, I've got a bunch of friends that will probably be listeners. And so like I vetted all of them and then they, they became listeners. And then I vetted more of them and then we had like 30 and then we had 40 and then we had 50, but it was just not enough to meet the demand. Um, and, you know, Paul Graham, who's the, you know, one of the founders of Y Combinator, he has this great point, do things that don't scale. So like I went and met with and called, I called 200 nonprofits in the Bay Area when I started. And I, you know, we're providing free support, right? So it's like, whatever nonprofit you are, you're a shelter, you run a homeless program, you, whatever, you're, you know, you're, you have a bunch of kids with behavior problems, whatever the thing is you're trying to do. I was offering free help to all of these folks and only one took me, took me up on it. And, and she agreed, she was from NAMI and she agreed to meet me for breakfast. So I went and met her for breakfast. Um, and she had had a son that had uh, bipolar disorder. So she was aware, she was touched by kind of the pain and she opened the door, but that's the kind of stuff you got to do. You got to do your, your, you know, that's the optimism thing, right? So the, so the, the going back to the beginning of accomplishing something significant, the hope is, Hey, I'm going to build a free emotional support service. And all these nonprofits are going to be like lining up to work with us. Right. Cause that makes sense. And then it's the crash. No, that's not how it works. That's and incredible. Then and then it's the wiggles, right? It's all the calls and all the calls and all the calls and all the calls and nobody calls you back and you know all that kind of anguish. But then you get one and that's the up. And that's the down, then it's the up, then it's the down. Yes, that, that's incredible. I mean, first of all, that must feel tough to do that 200 times. And that brings us to the other part of the equation. Is, is that how you got the word out amongst your first customers? Yeah, you get the, you get the word out and then you start getting these like links. So, you, so what I was doing is I was hanging out in mental health chat rooms and social networks and all these places where people were in pain and saying, okay, like, what are you doing online? Because it's an online service. What are you doing to reduce your pain? And a lot of it was chat rooms. They were disparate. They were all over the place. They weren't moderated. They weren't supervised um, or forums, right? Like, hey, I, I you know, I, I have an eating disorder, uh, you know, and I'm concerned and I'm afraid or I'm depressed or, you know, I want to hurt myself. And so then you, you, you find all these different um, places online, these kind of dark corners of the Internet. And you learn. And, and, I, th and I think you mentioned... I think it's um, Reddit. That, that's one of the sites that, that you visited. And, and what did that look like? Did you find somebody and they said, 
well, you know, I have problems said, hey, by the way, I've got this cool website you should check out. Is that how it looked like? Or was it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and Alexis, who's the co-founder of Reddit, is actually an investor in Seven Cups and a really great, really, really good guy who cares a lot about all the mental health kind of challenges. But yeah, that's essentially it. You go to these subreddits and you and you post. You say, hey, like you listen. So with, with any of these things, you don't want to be like, you, you have to add value. So if you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to get people to use your service, you have to give first and help them out a lot before you can expect any kind of receipt back. And so you, you should really be invested in just like, I'm going to give you five units of something and you might give me one unit back. So you got to have like a big tank of resources. So like a lot of people that support you and love you and care for you, so you can kind of keep going out there and getting depleted, but eventually you'll get enough of those units back that you can compound them. Now, Glenn, one of the things we've come back to a few times is, is Y Combinator. And for, for everyone who doesn't know about it, please do stop the recording and go and check it out. It's, it's very prestigious um, to be able to be part of that. And, uh, you know, a lot of people would love to be in there. And when you start a startup, it's not necessarily obvious what the way is to start it, but you decided to go and join Y Combinator. Why was that? Um, well, well, Y Combinator, so Y Combinator has a thing called Hacker News, which is worth checking out too. It's, I think it's just like news.ycombinator.com, but it's like we're all, I think a lot of very smart people um, engage in discussion. Uh, but anyways, I was, an, I was an avid Hacker News reader and um, Paul Graham has kind of written the, the startup canon, if you will. Like it's, um, you know, if, if you think about startups as a process or a skill that you can develop, right? The, the, the quality of the anything like, um, you know, my daughter's in track right now. So, so the, the quality of the coaching matters. Right. Or, or if you're an educator, the quality of the educator matters. And so the quality, if you're going to be doing a startup and as we've been, you know, underlining, it's so ridiculously tough. So if you're going to do something that's really tough, the quality of the coaching matters. Um, and so why Combinator, you know, is like the, you know, whatever, whatever kind of organization you want to point to that's really kind of quality good high quality people that know what they're doing but but not just in a um like people that have done it so so there's there's implicit knowledge right so like i might understand how to ride a bike right like what so you could describe like if i've never ridden a bike before you could describe it to me or you could stick me on a bike and send me down a hill Right. I'm going to learn different flying down a hill than I am just drawing a bicycle or reading a diagram on how it works. And so you want people that have implicit knowledge, like tacit, like this is what it's like. This is what you got to do. Like all the stuff I've been talking about in terms of like not quitting, going and meeting with people, talking to potential customers, like just never quitting like that's implicit tacit knowledge and if somebody hasn't lived that you're you know th this idea that culture is caught not taught right there's a that's the key thing they give you because like the knowledge is you can learn the knowledge but you have to catch you have to catch it too 
and you catch it in relationship. You catch it through being kind of mentored. Um, which, which is such a great phrase. I mean, culture is caught, not taught. And um, it's one of the ones that are worth thinking about. Now, when you read uh, Paul Graham's writings, and I'm blanking now on the website, I don't know if it's just his first name, last name, but I'm, I'm sure re uh, listeners can find it if they go and, and Google it. But it seems to me, and happy for you to correct me, he's big on quickly validating demand, like figuring out is their market, speak to the to people. I'm guessing there was a lot of that. What, what sort of things were you made to do in order to validate demand? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so at first, so yeah, it's just paulgram.com. Yes, but the guy, the guy who created Gmail, Paul Bucay, was was my main partner there. And, you know, obviously a genius, right? He created Gmail, um, uh, super smart guy. But Seven Cups was originally voice-based. So it was a call service because that's what crisis lines were. And I was modeling it after that. And so not in crisis, just emotional support, not crisis. But what would happen is you would call a number and we would ring all of our listeners, all their phones, we'd call all their phones. And the first one to pick up, we would bridge those two people. And so uh, we call him PB was like, listen, you got to launch this thing. And, you know, I scrambled and we launched it. And what we found was people were afraid of the phone, right? Like now it's obvious because like nobody uses the phone anymore for, for, they use the phone as little as they possibly can for voice reasons, right? Audio reasons, most everybody text messages. But back then that wasn't obvious. And as a psychologist, it's usually this, right? Person to person, face to face. So the intensity of the emotional connection from face to face, Next level down would be video call. Next level down would be audio. I thought, okay, audio is good. But what we learned is that audio is not good. It's still too anxiety provoking for people because of, you know, the emotional demand, the prosody, the, the, the tenor of your voice. Like I'm making an ask, I feel vulnerable even in this audio based discussion. But what people really liked was messaging anonymous messaging they're not identified nobody knows who they are they can message and and they don't feel judged and it's not threatening because they can just leave or whatever they want to do whenever they want to um, but yeah you don't learn those things except by doing that's why the doing like to your corporate versus entrepreneurial point earlier you just got to do and 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 education and and much of corporate development is about learning then doing but when you're doing something novel, you just got to do. Which is, I guess, such a hard point for some people, especially the, the ones that think they're conscientious. They often feel like they have to be perfect. And in order to be perfect, they have to think it through. And then yeah. there is analysis paralysis and nothing ever happens. And it's yeah. very difficult for them to know that to do it imperfectly is, is, is okay. It's the only way. You cannot do it perfectly. It's impossible. You have to bang your head against the wall. You have to make a bunch of mistakes. The problem is the path. Which is, which is the one mantra that uh, listeners can take away from this podcast. And it, it wouldn't be a bad thing to take away at all from this podcast. There's one thing to remember. If you're going to do something hard that's not been done before, I mean, just think about it. Like, what are the odds you're going to figure it out and make it perfect right away? With limited resources, limited insight, your little, you know, my little brain, your little brains, our little brains, even our collective brains, 
syncing up in a group of super talented people trying to figure out something really, really tough. The, the odds are like impossible that you're going to figure it out perfectly because there's just, think about it like all these decision points up, 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 you got to find your way through. It's impossible. So there's obviously the topic of monetization. You've got a startup, you've got bills to pay, and that's very important. And so as a naive outsider, I could have thought that, hey, um, if I were at Seven Cups, why don't we try to speak to the corporate market? And so I'm wondering, did you guys ever try to approach a business like BlackRock? There's you know a lot of pressures in a business like that. There's a lot of mental health support they could need. How did that go if you explored something like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. We sell. So, so yes, you have to make money. So whatever organization you have, you either have to not pay anybody, right? So your, your options are, it's entirely volunteer-based, so, so no money is needed, right? Which is really tough to pull off, especially if it's a tech company. You can run a nonprofit, right? But with a nonprofit, you have to get wealthy people to give you money. On average, wealthy people want to give you money after they meet with you 13 times, and they only want to give you a little bit of money. And so it's like a gigantic slog that's, that is tied to uh, broader economic variables, right? So like if the market crashes, if things go down, if they change their mind, like you don't want to build something that's significant where a lot of people are dependent upon you, where if your funders decide to not fund you, it's just not going to work anymore, which happens. I mean, you can do that, but it's just super risky. So your third option is, is, you can be a for-profit, right? Social impact for-profit, which is what we are. Generate your own money, right? Make your own money, get your own fuel for your car or your rocket or whatever it is you imagine you're doing. And, and then you, it's hard. That's a very hard path, but you can figure it out. And then if you figure it out, you got your money, which is good. And then you can pay people um, and then you can be more effective. So for us, um, therapists, are on our platform. So we have over hundred clinicians on the platform and we do like a group practice. We keep 40% and we give them 60% of whatever they charge. And that was our initial funding source to kind of keep things going. Um, and the second part is exactly what you said. So we do sell premium versions of the platform to organizations. So to universities, to health systems, to health plans, to, to really any type of organization that, that wants to provide better care for their people. Um, and so we do a whole bunch of kind of bells and whistles and uh, support to, to, to sell those things as well. You know, let, let me come to, you know, kind of positive note that, that is a good place to bring the conversation a little bit to a close, but I think it's a very important point. A, a lot of people who are entrepreneurs or who are thinking about it, they think a lot about their weaknesses. Um, and oftentimes they're just preoccupied and they think, well, that's it. Um, uh, I shouldn't be doing anything. And then there's this nice Andreessen Horowitz way of thinking about things, which is, hey, we don't invest in the absence of weakness. We invest in deep strength. So that is yeah. something that they see about you. And, you know, a potential question is, I mean, what was your deep strength? What did people really see about and what sort of weaknesses didn't matter because you could compensate for them? Geez, that's a really good question. And I have no idea. I never asked them like, hey, what are, what it, you know, what are my strengths or what are my weaknesses? But I think broadly, to your point, there's loads of research on this, like double, triple down on your strengths. Like the things that you're, you're you know, genetically wired for or the things you've evolved in life through, through growing up, your development, your strengths are what differentiate you. So just from a, from a personal investment perspective, 
you will make, I mean, yes, take care of your, like, get your weaknesses so they're not crushing you, right? You don't want to be like, you know, like undoing your life or making things more complicated, right? So like get some, some weaknesses short up, but like, don't worry about making your weaknesses strengths. Instead, triple down on your strengths, whatever those are. And if, you know, if you've been ever taken, people don't love the MBTI, but I think it's like the Myers-Briggs, it's 16 personalities, you know, take .com, you know, take some of these things to begin to get language, begin to become conscious of your strengths. Um, and then steer into those because that's what's going to give you the leverage to make an impact. Great points, great points. And, and obviously I, as a um, psychology student, I'm obviously partial to Seven Cups. I think it's a fantastic company. I think it's fantastic that somebody with your background managed to have the impact it had and um, thank you for being here. Great yeah. conversation. Thanks for the Much great appreciated. Discussion. And that's today's episode. Thank you for tuning in and see you next week.